I got to tell you a little story. We were in the back room back here, and I don't know about you, but I'm sick of winter. And uh, I mean, I'm really sick of winter. And um, so there, lo and behold, on the floor, a little bit of sunshine coming through the window and crawling across the carpet is a common housefly. What a great sign, a common housefly. You know, the kind that fly around and bug you all through July and August. And I, it was just so good. I, I looked down at that little housefly. It looked like he just woke up from a deep winter's sleep, you know, and he's moving kind of slow across the floor. And I, I you know, I started thinking about the things, that, the things that accompany summer and the leaves coming out on the trees and the grass starting to turn green and the smell of fresh mowed lawn. You know, and going out and, and camping and being outside and canoeing across the lake and watching a bobber on the lake and enjoying the warmth of the sunshine on my back and hearing the bees buzz around the flowers and smelling the lilacs at the beginning of June. All of those memories and, and images of summer, all of that promise and all of that hope. And Bill Christian came over and stomped on the fly. So if summer never comes, you know who to blame. (laughs) Back around the the turn of the century, the last turn of century, around 1900, the United States Department of Agriculture and some researchers at some of the agricultural colleges were getting a little bit frustrated with the farmers. I mean, we were were transitioning at that time from a very agricultural society to to one more of, uh, of, of industry. But the, the farmers were sort of locked into their old-fashioned habits and their old-fashioned ways of doing things. I like this story. You've heard the story about the woman who was teaching her little daughter how to, how to bake a ham. And she says, the first thing you do is you slice off both ends of the ham, just a thin slice on both ends, and you set it, and then you cook it. And, and the daughter says, why do we slice off both ends of the ham? And the mother says, well, that's the way my mom taught me. So she went to her mom and said, why do we slice off both ends of the ham? And the mom said, that's the way my mom taught me. So they went to the nursing home to visit grandma. So why do we slice off both? Why did you teach? She said, I didn't have a big enough pan. <laughs> and and we, we sort of fall into that, don't we? Something, we, just, we keep doing things the way we've always done them, the way we've always heard, the way that we're familiar with. And, and the United States Department of Agriculture was getting frustrated with farmers because they were sort of locked into that. They were developing new techniques for farming. They were ne- developing new strains of seeds and new ways of planting that were going to be more efficient. But they couldn't get the farmers to stop cutting both ends off of the ham. But they found that the farmers' kids would listen. The young people were ready to accept new ideas, new technology. And so they, they sort of went around the parents, and they started working with the young people and introducing them to new concepts, and they would, make, they would have corn-growing contests and different things that would get the kids involved. And through that, they would teach the young people about these, these changes, these new methods. And through that, then, they were able to eventually influence Agriculture in general, sort of subversive when you think about it, but it's, uh, it worked. And out of that effort grew an organization uh, really centered around young people in agriculture. And, uh, and that organization now has grown to over six and a half million members. That's more than the number of people we have in Wisconsin, six and a half 
million members, over 90,000 clubs all around the country. They actually have uh, uh, affiliate, um, affiliate clubs around the world. <clears throat> Their motto is to make the best better. I'm looking to see if anyone is recognizing this. I, I, a couple, couple of heads are nodding there. Okay. Their slogan is to learn by doing. If you didn't get it yet, this, this, if this doesn't, nothing will. I pledge my head to clearer thinking, my heart to greater loyalty, my hands to larger service, and my health to better living for my club, my community, my country, and my world. Get it a little bit more clearer for you. I pledge my head to clearer thinking, my heart to greater loyalty, my hands to larger service, and my health to better living for my club, my community, and my country, and my world. Who are they? 4-H. The 4-H. Did you know that 4-H is run by the Department of Agriculture? I did not know that. That's the, that's the, the, uh, the organizing entity behind 4-H. How many 4-Hers? Raise your hands. Ever involvement? We've got a few, four, five, six, seven, some reluctant, but hands are starting to go up there. Good. They've got, in the name, 4-H, right? They've got the head, the heart, the hand, the health. Does that remind you of a Bible verse? Well, the first thing that I think of is... Uh, is Jesus saying that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Sort of, he's saying, you need to love God 4-H. Okay? You need to love God 4-H. Well, I'm not going to talk really about 4-H today. The title of my message is 2-H. Okay? I don't have time for all four of the H's. We're going to do 2-H's today. I want to talk about our thinking and I want to talk about our feel. Okay? Fair enough? Now, you remember a story. You've heard this since you were a little kid. Solomon becomes the king. All right? He's not, he's not famous and wealthy yet. He's sort of new, and he's sort of intimidated. And God says, what do you want? And what does Solomon ask for? You sound pretty confident in that. You remember the Jarvik 7, 1982? The Jarvik 7 was a heart, a man-made heart that you could put inside of a person and it would replace the heart. It was intended as a short-term replacement to eventually be, uh, you know, while the heart was repaired or while a transplant was, uh, was prepared. But this human pump, the Jarvik 7, could be put inside of a person in place of their heart and would keep them alive. What a shame. I mean, can you imagine being in that position where you have a Jarvik 7 implanted in your chest and now you can no longer feel any emotion because you don't have a heart? You no longer can sense love. You no longer can sense fear. You no longer have anxiety. You're like a robot because you have no heart, right? But the heart is the fountain of all of our emotions, is it not? 
if you have no heart? Or what happens if you get a transplant from somebody else? Oh, the car accident victim, his heart is now in your chest and now you have his emotions all of a sudden and you're in love with someone else. We know that's not true. We know that God, in his creation of us, gave us a marvelous brain. And that's really the source of our emotions, not our heart. We ascribe that to our heart. We talk about our heart as the source of the emotions. But we must admit that science says it's all up here. It's in your head. I'll read you a definition. This is more than I would know. But your brain is made up of many different parts that all work together to process the information it receives. The main part of the brain responsible for processing emotions, the limbic system, is sometimes called the emotional brain. That's the main part of the brain. Part of the limbic system, called the amygdala, assesses the emotional value of stimuli. It's the main part of the brain associated with fear reactions. The part of the brain stretching from the ventral tegmental area to the middle of the brain to the nucleus accumbens of the front of the brain, I may not have pronounced that right, has a huge concentration of dopamine receptors, those neuron receptors and things in your, in your brain, that make you feel pleasure. The hypothalamus is in charge of regulating how you respond to emotions. So if you have excitement or fear and that makes your heart beat faster and your blood pressure goes up and your breathing increases, that's the hypothalamus doing its job. It's all up here in your brain. The hippocampus turns your short-term memory into long-term memory and helps you retrieve stored memory. Your memories inform you how to respond to the world around you, including what your emotional responses ought to be. It's all happening up here, whether you understand what I just read or not. It's all in your head. So let me simplify that to some extent here for you. The brain's got a couple of different things that it is good at doing. It has cognitive functions, the thinking stuff, you know, doing the math assignment, that's cognitive function, processing. And then it has affective function, affective meaning feelings and emotions and those kind of things. So let's take a case sample and see if we can make sense of all of that, okay? Let's say it is Monday morning and you are driving to work. Simple enough, Monday morning, you are driving to work. Driving along, thinking about your agenda for the day. You look in the mirror, and there's red and blue lights flashing behind you, okay? I don't mean back behind you some distance. I mean right behind you, not anybody else. The lights are intended for you, okay? Your brain starts doing some things, right? So you have both cognitive and affective uh, uh, functions that are going on in your brain. Your cognitive is thinking. I have been taught that when those lights come on, I am to pull over to the right. That's what I have been taught. I've got to get to the right, look for a safe place. There's a safe place. I can pull over right there. I will, uh, I'll signal for my turn. I'll put it in park. When I, those are all function, uh, uh, cognitive function kinds of things, right? I would suspect that you also have some affective functions going on at that time. Paul doesn't think so. No, I think that perhaps the, co- the, the affective function in your brain, instead of being in your brain, has now dropped in your belly and is rolling around somewhere, right? Uh, Now, the officer explains to you that you are traveling 38 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone, and your cognitive is doing the math on that, right? 43 miles, 25. I'm doing uh, doing 13 miles an hour over. That's a four-point violation. That's going to cost me $126, right? All of these kind of uh, uh, functions. And you look at your watch. Cognitively, logically, you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to be 10 minutes late for work. I'm now going to have to average 47 miles an hour the rest of the way to work, (laughs) right? That's, That's what your cognitive function does. 
and your, and your affective function of your brain worries about all the rest of it, you know, all the emotional stuff that comes along with that. The police officer sees the affect, affective function on your face. It's more than just emotion. It is emotion. The affective function is emotion, but it's more than just emotion. It is, it is also experience, that, that recall of experience and what things mean to you. Um, uh, what was it, two months ago, we had a state trooper hit out on the freeway. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, he had a partial amputation of a leg. And uh, I wanted to encourage him. And now I could go and talk to him, and I could, I, could, I, I could give him encouragement. But instead, I called Tony Costa, or I tried to call Tony Costa, a guy I used to work with out in San Luis Obispo, California, who was a lieutenant when I was an officer out there. Tony Costa is a wiry, rodeo-riding guy that uh, he's, he's hard to break. And uh, he was in a motorcycle accident, I had heard after I moved back here, and lost a leg. What a tragic end to a career. Lose your, he was in a motorcycle accident and lost a leg. So some years later, I had gone back and I was visiting at the San Luis Obispo Police Department, talking to some of my old friends there, and all of a sudden, Tony Costa walks out in uniform, working as a police officer, walking through the lobby. And he looks at me and he recognizes me and he says, hello, and I says, I must have heard a really bad rumor about you. He says, why? What would you hear? He said, I, well, I, I heard you were in a motorcycle accident. He said, I was. So I heard it was pretty bad. He said, it was. I said, I heard you lost a leg, Tony. He said, I did. Well, then how can... He said, I, they told me to retire. They said I couldn't work as a police officer. And I said, I'll make a deal with you. You give me the same fitness test that you give to new recruits that have to pass your test. And if I can pass that test with my prosthetic, you will let me work. And he beat most of the recruits. So I wanted to call Tony Costa and say, Tony, I need you to contact Justin Hansen, the state trooper, because you can say something nobody else can. You can say, I understand. I can talk to Justin and I can try to encourage him, but I cannot say, I understand. As a matter of fact, if I try to say understand, I will become a liar to him and lose all credibility, right? So when we, we talk about understanding, uh, that's part of that experiential piece of what the affective function of your brain is. Yesterday, Creed and I were up visiting a school up in northern Wisconsin. I don't know if you're familiar with the conserve school. It's a one-semester high school. You go up for one semester of your high school, and uh, you learn a lot about uh, uh, nature and uh, taking care of the environment and those kinds of things. But it is an experiential-based school. So you come in the classroom, and they're more than half the time likely to say, let's go outside. And so instead of just studying Lewis and Clark and how they did things, uh, they go out and they actually make a dugout canoe. Instead of studying William Shackleton and his journey to the South Pole and how they had to drag these lifeboats across the ice after their ship got stuck in the ice and crushed, they actually go out on the ice and drag boats across the ice. That's experiential learning. And it has a different impact on you than cognitive learning, does it not? So that's also part of that affective function of your brain. There's a third piece of it as well, and that is uh, uh, your virtues. It's emotion, it's experience, but it is also the concept of virtues, ambition, courage, 
loyalty, honesty, compassion. Those kinds of things come from the affective side of your brain. All right, so let me ask you again. What was it that Solomon asked for? Well, now you're going to be quiet on me. You seemed pretty sure before. Well, whether it's, whether it's the cognitive function or the affective function, both of those are gifts from God, are they not? They're both gifts that God has given to us, the Creator has imbued us with. And the Bible talks about both of those things in various ways. First Chronicles 28.9 says, And thou, Solomon my son, this is David talking to Solomon, giving him his, his fatherly advice as Solomon is taking over the kingdom. He says, Know thou the God of thy father. And serve him with a perfect heart and a willing mind. See how he differentiated those two? Serve him with a perfect heart and a willing mind, both cognitive and affective. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. Luke 6.45, the words of Jesus. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Again, we know that's happening in the brain, but we associate it with the heart because it's affective. Uh, Luke 6, 45, I read that one. Psalm 51, 10, you know this one well. This is David after the sin with Bathsheba. His famous words of repentance. Create in me a clean heart, O God. There's a difference between head thinking and heart thinking. In my line of work, we try to understand if a person did something from their head or from their heart. It makes a difference, especially internally. Let's say, for example, that uh, a supervisor is reviewing a drug case and notices on the list of drugs inventory that were recovered during the search warrant, something's missing. That's a big deal. And so the officer is gone. He can't ask the officer what happened. He asks the other officers. They don't know. He goes to the officer's locker. There's his coat, checks in the coat pocket, and there is the missing stuff in the coat pocket. Is that a head error or a heart error? We don't know. Because if he simply forgot it, that's a head error. If he intentionally hit it, that's a heart error. And the difference between the two is getting a letter of reprimand and losing your job and probably your entire career, right? It's a big deal. <clears throat> and maybe you already know this, but in regards to the cognitive function and the affective function and our expertise with each of those things, there is some difference between men and women. Oh, the women are all nodding, see? The men are going, what? I... <laughs> I think there are times when the men are more affective and less cognitive and vice versa, times where the women are more aff affective or less, less affective. I think if you are driving in traffic and someone cuts you off, the men go very quickly into the affective role rather than the logical processing of information. But woe be the husband who hears his wife tell him how upset she is with something he has done or said. And he says, 
That's nothing. Don't worry about that. Don't be upset about that. Well, you may as well throw a frying pan at her, right? They're more in touch, generally, with that affective side. All right, let me ask you one more uh, time here. What was it that Solomon asked for? Shout it out. Wisdom. Solomon, everybody knows that. I've been taught since I was a little kid. Solomon was, in his prayer to God, in his, in his request of God, when God came to visit him, he asked for wisdom. That's the cognitive side of things, is it not? He wanted to be a smart guy. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3. And we'll pick that story up here. Beginning of the chapter, he makes this treaty with Pharaoh and marries, marries his daughter. And uh, he goes to Gibeon to make sacrifice there, and God comes to him. So in verse 5, it says, At Gibeon, I'm sorry, I didn't give you the chapter. You're just supposed to know that. That's cognitive. Uh, chapter 3, I'm sorry. 1 Kings chapter 3. And uh, I'm starting on verse 5. And I've, uh, I'm reading New King James. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? Isn't that a great scene? We, we, we've heard that for so many times. But how many, you know, here he is beginning his life as the new ruler of this kingdom. And God says, ask. That's better than a genie. A genie only gives you three wishes. God says, whatever you want, just name it. Whatever you want. And, uh, and in verse 6, Solomon answers him. He says, you have shown great mercy to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness, uh, uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, here comes a request. Now, O Lord, my God. You do not know, oh, I missed it. You have made your king, your servant king instead of my father David, but I'm a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of all your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant. What does your Bible say? An understanding heart. What happened to wisdom? I was taught all my life he asked for wisdom. He was the smart guy. He was, in his time, the champion of Jeopardy. You could ask him any question. He knew the answer. He was cognitively superior. It says he asked for an understanding heart. Now, that sounds more like the affective side than the cognitive side. Let's explore that a little more deeply here. The Hebrew word that is translated understanding there is the Hebrew word shama. Shama. I think it's S-H-A-M-A-H. And it's used over a thousand times in the Bible. And two-thirds of those times when it's used in the Bible, the word is translated to hear. So, in one manner, what Solomon is asking for here is, give me a heart that hears. Give me a hearing heart. Give me a hearing heart. He wants more than just knowledge. He wants the emotional intelligence. 
He wants the experiential intelligence, and he's talking about that. I've got no experience. I've never done this before. Here I am. I'm brand new. There's all these people. I've got all these problems. He doesn't have that confidence. And he wants the virtue that is associated with the affective side of the brain. So he asks for an understanding heart. And as it goes on there in the chapter, it says why he wants that, so that he can make good judgment, so that he can discern between good and evil. He asks for that. I think someone cheated me when I was a child when they told me the Solomon story because I think this is much better than he was just a smart guy. Yeah, it's wisdom. Yeah, it's brain power. But it's that affective function of the brain that understands so much more than just facts. In Ezekiel 36, 26, and that was our scripture reading this morning, it says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I'll take away your stony heart, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. Ellen White makes this comment on that very verse. She says, the youth especially stumble over this phrase, a new heart. They do not know what it means. They look for a special change to take place in their feeling. And this they term conversion. Remember, it's much more than just emotion. Over this error, thousands have stumbled to ruin, not understanding the expression, you must be born again. When Jesus speaks of the new heart, he means the mind, cognitive function. He means the life, the things that you do and how you live. He means the whole being. To have a change of heart is to withdraw from the affections of the world and fasten them upon Christ. To have a new heart is to have a new mind, new purposes, new motives. What is the sign of a new heart, she says? A changed life. A changed life. It isn't that really what God asks of us. I mean, it's one thing to be a Christian cognitively. And it's one thing to say, I love Jesus emotionally. But neither one of those are the complete picture. God wants a relationship with us, 4-H. He wants all of it. He doesn't want us in pieces or in compartments. He wants a part of all of our lives, holy in total. Nothing kept back. Nothing reserved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We've taken a new look at a couple of words and a couple of concepts here this morning. And and the story of uh, Solomon, where we've always been led to believe that he asked for wisdom and was given wisdom, and yet it's so much more than that as we explore these ideas of the affective function, being emotionally intelligent, being experientially intelligent, being virtuously intelligent. Father, you've asked for all of our heart, all of our mind all of our soul, all of our strength. Help us to recommit all of that today in our service to you, in our relationship to you, in our worship of you. Help us not to have just a head faith and not just a heart faith, but a whole being faith, a life changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Father God, I pray that each one of us here today will have the boldness to ask you 
as Solomon asked, for an understanding heart. We may not be leading uh, a million people, but we have influences all around us, in our work, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our day-to-day living. We have the responsibility as Christians to exemplify your character and your love. So, Father, this morning, let it be the bold prayer of each one of us to ask just as Solomon asked. Father, give us an understanding heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.